I didn't know actually how much my choices had been driven by genetics versus me thinking I had free will and I was like being this radical person becoming a psychologist. This is Rx Chill Pill, where just by listening, your brain will get more resilient and less stressed out. Now is the time to stay well. Each episode teaches your brain how to become resilient with amazing stories, knowledge from experts, and short meditations you can do anywhere, anytime to elicit your relaxation response. I'm your resilience doctor, Juna Bobby. I'm a physician and a mom of two amazing kids. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Tara Well, an associate psychology professor at Barnard College of Columbia University, where she teaches health psychology leadership, as well as integrating her mirror meditation to increase self-connection and compassion in her students. She'll talk to us today about her story, how she became the first college-educated professor in her family, her journey of self-discovery, which led her to research and creation of the mirror meditation method, as well as sharing her valuable insider tips on becoming a TEDx speaker. Hi, Tara. Hi. Hi, Juno. I'm so excited to have Tara Well here today. Um, Tara Well is an associate professor of psychology at Barnard College, and you've been teaching there for 20 years, right? Yes, indeed. So she's teaching uh, personality psychology, health psychology, and psychology of leadership. She's also done research on motivation, perception, and cognition, and she's been funded by the NIMH, which is the National Institute of Mental Health, and the National Science Foundation. Recently, she just finished her first TEDx talk, right? Yes, indeed. Congratulations. That's so exciting. And tell us a little bit about what you spoke about. I mean, I met you, you know, maybe three years ago at Barnard when I was giving some workshops there, and I had the privilege of sneaking into your classroom and watching you <laughs> do the, the meditation that you're going to tell us about, right? It's called the mirror meditation. Yes, indeed. I've been um, using mirrors in my work um, as a way to help people see themselves more clearly. Oftentimes, uh, when people meditate, their minds tend to wander, mm-hmm. and the mirror actually helps people to bring their attention back to the present moment. Mm -hmm. It also helps people see themselves more compassionately. Oftentimes we don't realize how sort of mean we are to ourselves. We have an inner critic that is constantly active. And and when when we try to slow our minds down to meditate, it kind of pops up almost with a vengeance. So the mirror really helps people to see just how much their inner critic is affecting them. It also helps people to manage their emotions. One of the things that we find as we spend more time alone and on our devices is that we're not having as much face-to-face contact. With other people. Exactly. Or ourselves. (laughs) Or ourselves, exactly. And so what's happening is we're having an increase in anxiety, an increase in loneliness, uh, a lack of empathy in our society. This epidemic on anxiety and depression, is that Mm -hmm. right? It's increasing? Every year, I mean, you teach young women, right? right? In, and do you teach Columbia students as well? I teach Columbia students as well. Yes. Okay. So, do you have men in your classrooms, or is it? It varies. It can usually be about ten percent men. In one of my classes this semester, I have more men than women. So, wow, that's interesting. But yes, we definitely see an increase in just generally in our society of people reporting that they're lonely. And um, increases in anxiety, definitely. And how does that show up in the college population? 
And the college population... Have you noticed the difference in the last 20 years you've taught there? Yes. I think for, for me, and I don't, I don't have the statistics on my specific group of students uh-huh. over time, but my observation is that students seem much more anxious. And, and how does that show up in, in their day-to-day um, lives? They look anxious. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I've uh, come to do is to, is to teach uh, meditation in all my classes. In all your classes? So I begin each class with a meditation, yes. And in my seminars, the eight weeks uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction in, in my classes. The John Kabat-Zinn UMass yes. program. And I also give them a chance to do the mirror meditation as well. Wow. Uh, so do they know when they're signing up for your class that they're going to get this meditation? Yeah, I tell them. So they know on the syllabus before they choose it. Exactly. Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> so nobody's yeah. coming and, and saying, what is this? And I get a lot of positive feedback. You know, there's thousands and thousands of studies showing that the benefits of meditation. You know, when I used to teach um, my health psychology class and my, you know, and, and it was just sort of the beginning of mind-body medicine, there was mm-hmm. a, a book called that Bill Moyers did called Healing in the Mind, which was published in 1995. It had a um, interviews with John Kabat-Zinn, Dean Ornish, uh, Candace Pert, who's now deceased, and a bunch of other people who were kind of at the cutting edge of doing mind-body medicine. Mm-hmm. And it was it was sort of like very radical that I wanted to use this <laughs> book in a college setting. So and you used it in your class? I did use it in my class. It was considered very, very, very radical. But um, over time, I think my colleagues and everyone in most academic communities has come to accept meditation as something that has can create some serious health benefits and also um, emotion regulation. And there's ever-growing evidence. So how did you get involved in that? Well, I've been medita- I'd had a meditation and yoga practice since um, I think I read Autobiography of a Yogi when I was in high school. Wow. And I remember thinking, this is it. I remember like <laughs> sitting at the kitchen table telling my mom, you know, this is it. This is like I discovered the key to life kind of a thing. Wow. You know, and, you know, over time. I Where, where I, did you grow up? That I, doesn't sound normal. <laughs> I, I grew up in Cleveland. Uh, working class background. And, but how did you even come across a book like that? We had a, um, a class where we had to read something, mm-hmm. and it was in a free reading bin. And so I just, it was just it just attracted you. Yeah, it was like and glowing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and were, were your parents interested in meditation? No, not at all. Were they not? not they weren't hippies or anything. No, no, not at all. They're pretty conservative. <laughs> and so, did they think you were weird? <laughs> I think that, you know, they thought it was a phase I was going through. And, uh-huh. and over time, you know, I became less less sort of zealous about it. But I think it's been sort of unwavering that I've really seen the benefits of meditation and yoga. I'm really happy that it's become more integrated into the mainstream, that everyone can benefit from it. Yeah. You know, even if, if it's not the spiritual aspects, it can they can at least benefit from it from the stress reduction aspects of it. And yeah. The, and the emotion regulation is really key that we're, that's the part that we're developing more and more in, in science and in research is showing, you know, kind of breaking it down. Why is meditation? so effective mm-hmm. and that's and there's my handbook of emotion regulation look behind you uh-huh james uh, gross yeah. i love that book yeah so when you were in high school and you pick up this book uh-huh. do you remember what stuck do you remember what the impression was well you talked a lot about like i don't know like reincarnation and how you can enter these altered states and and the reality is much bigger than your day-to-day activities uh-huh and uh, at that time, something about it really clicked, and and I was like, hmm, I want to do more of this, 
meditation. And then did you start a practice? Yeah, I started a practice on my own. I used to do a lot of different breathing techniques, actually. Uh-huh. And if you breathe, I mean, I was a kid, so I experimented with breathing to the point where you you almost start hallucinating because you're, you're like, breathe, <laughs> you're like hyperventilating, you yes. start seeing visions and stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah, you so can I was I was kind of you know very experimental in my in my early in my late teens, early twenties. And did you read about it? Or I read some I have a about whole it. Book on breath work, and they give you all these methods. But did you just make it up, or do you remember yeah. reading about it? I kind of spontaneously discovered it and then I found books on it so I was thinking wow you know and and to a lot of the experience I had when I was meditating that kind of seemed kooky or that I was like making them up in fantasy when I read later books on eastern philosophy uh-huh. it, w- it was more like they've arrived at the same conclusions so as a scientist mm-hmm. I know that when you observe something and you make detailed observations of it and then other people observe the same thing and their observations match that there's something to that uh-huh. and that's one of the differences between just sort of looking at things and projecting your own stuff onto it, Uh right, versus seeing something, you know, having a sense of what it is, and then reading about other people's experience or having the same experience. And then having, becoming up with a theory and a a thesis and, like, why trust science, right? Uh Uh-huh. Like that book behind you. I know, that's a great book. (laughs) Having that scientific method appeal to you. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's interesting to me because you were very interested in this kind of yoga reincarnation, kind of far out there stuff. So how? Uh-huh. where does the scientist come in? Well, the scientist comes in for me. I mean, I think my basic life question has always been and still is. How and why do people see see the same thing differently? Like everybody has a little bit of a different spin on how they see the world, sometimes mm-hmm. a lot different. Mm-hmm. So in my early work um, uh, as a psychologist, I did a lot of research looking at motivation and perception and sort of the intersection of motivation and perception. Mm-hmm. How does what people's motives affect how they see the world, how they see their own experiences, how they see opportunities, how they see and explain what's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of variability in that. And I think it's very good to be able to understand those differences. So did you stay curious in the mystical realm as well all along? I think less so, uh-huh. mainly because I knew that, you know, I got some very clear feedback that that wasn't going to fly like in graduate school and <laughs> and my first job as an assistant professor you know talking about that stuff and so, so for it me wasn't going to fly for you in the academic world right but in your heart you're still interested in that it still spoke to you I mean I'm interested in it but I think at this point I like I don't consider myself a seeker mm-hmm. because I think that I I I basically sort of have my beliefs and I'm comfortable with them and I'm open to to changing and growing, Mm -hmm. but I'm not like looking for the answer. Right. You know, I'm, I'm more like in the present moment and being open to whatever the experience is. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, trying to see the world with kindness and and integrity. Mm -hmm. And now did you grow up in a particular religion? Sort of like, like, congregational Protestant, but not not really. Uh, I think I've expanded over time. Like I'm certainly include Christianity in my beliefs, mm-hmm. but 
I think that all the basic world religions come down to the few simple principles that I think that we can all agree on, that, you know, to love other people, to love ourselves, to take care of the, the planet, to how our actions come back to us. Compassion. We, we, compassion. We, ha- we have responsibility for our actions. Mm-hmm. So I think they're just basic guiding principles that most people follow, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully. On a good day. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, you're in graduate school. You start to study psychology. Uh huh. It's interesting because I I come from a working class family, and so I wasn't really that motivated in high school. But once I started going to community college and taking classes, I really loved it, mm. and I continued to go to a a public undergraduate institution while I was working full time, and then I ended up. What were up, you doing uh, full time? Waiting tables. Wow. Okay. And so you the, supported yourself. Oh yeah. Through, yeah. yeah <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Uh-huh. And then I went to uh, Michigan State, which is where I worked with a professor named Joel Ernoff, who was one of Abraham Maslow's original students. He worked wow. with Maslow at uh, at Brandeis in the seventies. Wow. And so, can you just explain for the audience who um, Maslow is and his theory? Yeah, uh, Abraham Maslow's the pyramid guy. He's the yes. guy who came up with the pyramid hierarchy of needs, and uh, he began at the bottom of the pyramid with our basic physiological needs. Then our safety needs. Like we have to have food. Yes. Water. Yeah. And then we have to feel safe. We have to have a a predictable environment to grow up in. If we grow up in chaos, then we can get kind of fixated at being um, uh, concerned with outer circumstances to help us feel safe. And that's the second part of the pyramid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the third is um, love and belongingness, which is, you know, making connections with other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, esteem needs, there's... Uh, basically, f- feeling like what you're that you're worthy and that you're contributing something uh, to the world. And then at the very top, it's like self-actualization, yes. which was in Maslow's view that that was only like one percent of the population or less who really got there, and that was kind of transcending these strong drives uh, that kind of affect us and guide our behavior. And you have to have all those basic needs met before you can get to that highest part of the pyramid. That's why it's a pyramid. Although he never really stated it as a pyramid, it was kind of like something that other people came up with as a graphic. Mm. And by self-actualization, he meant fulfilling your... Fulfilling potential. life's potential, yeah, fulfilling mm-hmm. your highest potential, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you worked with somebody who directly worked with him. Yeah, that's exactly. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was sort of the beginning of really focusing on motivation and perception. You know, over time, I became you know interested in personality, and I I moved to Barnard, and. One of the interesting things, too, was that I was adopted as a kid. So I actually met my birth parents maybe about maybe 15 years ago. And I found out that they're both college professors. My dad was a psychology professor. They're retired now, too. So (laughs) has got chills. So So, so that has has been interesting in terms of... Nature versus nurture, right? Exactly. Like, I thought I was being rebellious by becoming a college professor because... And being a psychologist because I grew up in this, you know, very practical family and they were like, well, you got a degree in in psychology. How are you going to get a job doing that, you know? And I was like, don't worry about it, you know? And so as time went on, like, I was like this rebel who was going to be a psychologist. Were you the first one to go to college? Yeah. In your adopted family? Right. I mean, I don't have brothers and sisters. So when I met my birth parents, it was amazing. I didn't know actually how much my choices had been driven by genetics versus me thinking I had free will and I was like being this radical person becoming a psychologist. 
You should see my face right now. They can't oh. see my face, but I'm just like <laughs> floored by this story. That's unbelievable. And how did you end up meeting them? Well, um, I initially hired a, actually a private detective to try and find my mother. When the drops and records were open, wow. so, and that varies state by state. I thought that I kind of pinpointed her, but I, I wanted somebody else to approach her because I really didn't want to invade her life, you know, uh -huh. or, and I didn't know, like, you know, I, I knew she was married and had, had had a family after that ha it happened. So, um, after she gave me up for adoption and I didn't want to intrude on her life. I didn't know if she had told her husband or kids or whatever. Right. So I wanted someone else to approach her as sort of a mediator. What drove you to wanting to find her? Have well, you always curious. thought about it? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to say thank you and to tell her that you know my life turned out really well, and um, and and too, I was interested in you know uh, getting health information, right? In terms of as I got older, any kind of health concerns, I wanted to. I didn't have any of the genetic information. Mm -hmm. This was before genetic testing accelerated, and and to, you could just order it. Online. You just order it now, right? <laughs> so, but that must have been emotional for you, right? Yeah, it was. It was a big deal. I mean, I think you have to go to those in a situation like that. You can't really have expectations that it's going to like be a certain way or that you're going to get something that you didn't get before because mm -hmm. you just can't have those kinds of expectations. So when people ask me, you know, sh should you do it or, you know, do I regret doing it? It's important to do it from a place that you have a lot of emotional support from people in your life already mm -hmm. and that you don't go thinking that you're going to get something from them in the mm -hmm. sense of that they're going to love you and they're going to they're going to think you're great or they're going to you know whatever it is you want mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's kind of part of the story that most adopted people have so that you just go as an adult saying you know for whatever reason you're going and you're really clear about it and you have a lot of support mhm mm i wonder some of that seeking and your attachment to autobiography of a yogi like uh -huh. would have to do with the fact that you were adopted Hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that adopted people have in common is they kind of have two tracks. They have a, they have their kind of persona and their personality of who they're expected to be by their adopted parents. And then they have this other mysterious part of themselves that they don't know where they come from or what the story is. So that can be disturbing, but it can also be really freeing because you have mm -hmm. a lot of creativity in terms of discovering who you are and then just creating uh, an identity or, or a sense of self out of this void that you just don't really know. Mm -hmm. So, um, But it sounds like you were very resilient about this. I think... You I were think, seeking intellectual resilience. Yeah. I would say that I used psychology as a, as a kid to really help me learn coping skills and to help me learn, um, you know, emotion regulation, to put things in perspective, again, to understand how people see the world differently. And who am I, basically? Right. <laughs> who am I was a big question, and it is for most adopted children, I think. Uh-huh. So that, that brings me to an observation I've often made is um, people in the helping professions, a psychologist, especially um, psychiatrists, all seem to have had a story of resilience in their lives where they sought. Do you think that's true? Like we I, learn or teach what we need? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's research on it. I think Dan McAdams has done some interesting research on generativity stories, the idea that you want to give back to future generations from mm-hmm. what you've learned in life, mm-hmm. um, and that one of the core characteristics of people who tend to be very generative are those who've had some kind of adversity in life, and then they'd see a way to um, help other people, to, to, to make meaning out of the experience, and then use that meaning to help other people understand their own experiences or at least put the interpretation of it out into the world. Mm-hmm. To help others yeah. with our own experience. Yeah. yeah. So that's an amazing story. Getting back to your mirror meditation, uh-huh. I mean, I could put a spin on it now. That oh. we, right? <laughs> Looking in the mirror, who am I? Yeah, right? Who am I? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> when did that start? Did you just come upon it, or did you read about it? It's interesting because I think as a child, I used to spend a lot of time looking in the mirror. We used to have a a shiny chrome toaster on the table in uh-huh. our in our dining in our dining room and I, I used to remember like making faces my my gra- grandpa used to call them monkey shines I did for as long as my parents would let me <laughs> you know and and it was a lot of fun and you know as a kid I didn't have brothers and sisters growing up you know so it was kind of like almost an imaginary friend and it was also a way I, I spent a lot of time like imitating adults trying on these different characters that I saw on TV uh-huh and so it really taught me about some emotion regulation and also, you know, just social skills and That's trying on so different roles and pretending. Yeah, and like an imaginary friend, but you yourself. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. It was it was fun. But then, you know, as I grew older, I, babies, I think I, babies are so obsessed with the mirror. I remember when I had my kids, you know, putting a mirror in front of my son for the first time. You know, they're fascinated by it, right? And then it's that metacognition that humans have to realize that that person in the mirror is you. And I don't think many other mammals have that. Maybe I think a monkey knows. Yeah. Maybe Dolphins, I think. Yeah, no? dolphins too. Monkeys, uh, primates. There's a sort of a correlation with the um, amount of time that mammals spend needing care from their mothers, or caregivers. How much they can recognize themselves in the mirror. That so happens. The longer your mom is taking care of you as a baby, the more likely that species will be able to recognize that they are themselves in the mirror. Right. Okay, and not some other being. <laughs> right. For children, it's about 20 months is the average. So before that, they, they might be fascinated by what they see, but they don't they don't know it's them. They think uh-huh. it's just like something interesting. And like photographs, too. Uh-huh. I remember my son, he was, he was the only child for a little while. He would see photographs of me holding him, and he would smack it. <laughs> it's like jealous. So you started playing with from the mirror, and uh-huh. you, I guess it was friendly to you. Yeah, it was very fun. Uh huh. And then, you know, as I grew older, I think I sort of got shamed out of it in terms of, what are you doing looking at yourself in the mirror all the time? Huh. And then, you know, as I grew older, too, those messages about beauty and, and everything as I grew into a, a young woman, I was using the mirror to basically to compare myself with the fashion model models and magazines and actors on TV in terms of how I was supposed to look and the makeup I was supposed to wear and my hair. And And at some point, right, like I think middle school maybe or high school, we literally just look to make sure that nothing's out of place. Right. Or just to fix ourselves. Right. So the mirror becomes associated with scrutiny and also self-objectification, which is the idea of seeing oneself as an object rather than as a person. So when we look in the mirror, we want 
to kind of adjust this and that yeah. so that we look presentable. Yeah. But we but we oftentimes forget to check in with how we're feeling. I don't think most people ever do that. <laughs> I can't remember the last time. Well, now that I know about your mirror med- meditation, <laughs> I don't remember the last time where I would regularly look in the mirror and smile at myself, for example. Like you would your neighbor or your friend. Like yeah. we relate to ourselves in that way. Yeah, we, we see ourselves as like, what's wrong? Do I have spinach in my teeth? <laughs> you know, I, I, I call it the trifecta of self-cruelty, old, Ooh. fat, and ugly. When they have a critical orientation toward themselves in the mirror, uh-huh. they see that they're getting older, they see that they're getting fatter, they uh-huh. see that they're, they're, they're not as attractive, they find some aspect of themselves that they don't like, you know. And like that's pulling kind of, and tugging and... Right, All right. That. So it's not surprising that many people um, avoid mirrors, particularly as men? they get old. They probably don't look in the mirror as much, right? They have a different set of issues. I've, I work with a lot of men in uh, doing mirror meditation, too. It's less about their appearance and more about sort of like their integrity, their mood, how they're coming across generally to people. Mm-hmm. But I think they also do have appearance issues much more than women might think. I remember like after reading about you and meeting you, thinking that it is so interesting. I mean, we live with ourselves 24-7. And when we see ourselves, it's never friendly (laughs) in a reflection, you know, maybe once in a while you're like, oh, I like what I'm wearing or it's not a regularity that we would just as self-compassion has in its place. We don't do that to ourselves. When we see our friends, we're expected to be friendly and we expect ourselves to be friendly to them. It's normal. But when we see ourselves in the mirror, (laughs) it's never like, oh, hey, how are you? Never. We don't see ourselves, and our first glance at ourselves tends to activate the inner critic. But for that, many, for many people, in that case, it's like your reflection becomes associated with self-criticism. Because of societal norms, and we're expected to look in the mirror just to check ourselves and not to really talk to ourselves, because that would look weird. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think the other thing is mirrors are associated with narcissism. So if oh. you spend your, your time looking in the mirror, kissing the mirror, that would not be good. <laughs> So that's but, the other thing. That's the other extreme. It's either you're a narcissist because you're looking and you're, you're looking at yourself fondly. Yourself. Yeah. Or you're, you know, criticizing yourself, which is maybe more virtuous, but it's also very painful and, uh-huh. and not accurate. The teenagers and the preteens now, uh-huh. they're always looking in their phones, but they're taking selfies. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly making faces and they're making faces at themselves and like sending pictures of themselves to people all day long. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) But the true form of narcissism isn't just looking at ourselves physically, right? I think people get confused with the lay term, like pop culture narcissism versus true narcissism, which is when they can't even understand somebody else's emotions. Narcissism, to have narcissistic personality disorder is only like 1% of the population. The main criteria for for psychiatric diagnoses is if your personality disorder is getting in the way of you having a satisfying work life and relationships. Mm -hmm. And so, but what we see in the culture is on a continuum in terms of narcissistic tendencies that people can have. And I even feel uncomfortable sometimes using the word narcissism because, as you say, it's thrown around so much you don't really know what it means. Mm -hmm. Uh, But people always bring it up when I talk about mirrors. 
the cornerstone of, of narcissism or narcissistic tendencies is a lack of empathy, not yes. being able to feel the emotions of others. Yes, lack of empathy. And so it's very interesting that one of the ways that we learn empathy mm-hmm. is through face-to-face contact as yes. children. It creates a very interesting uh, parallel uh-huh. to think about how narcissists might like looking at themselves in the mirror, mm-hmm. but not be empathic. So they're not empathing to themselves either? Not really. Uh-huh. They, they identify with themselves through an image. The psychiatric literature, the psychoanalytic literature, there's a specific parenting pattern that leads to narcissistic tendencies. Uh-huh. And that is being raised by a parent who wants to focus on that image and that perfect image of their child so that they look at the perfect image that they see in their child. But when their child feels other things like vulnerability or fear or anger or distress, the parent tends not to mirror them, tends not to look at them. Mm. So they look away from the child. Mm -hmm. So the child sort of feels invisible when they feel these uh, more vulnerable feelings. Mm -hmm. So the child learns to then just project this perfect positive image Mm. to get affirmation. And Mm -hmm. then that leads to, you know, not necessarily being very empathic to other people because they're not really learning empathy. They're not being shown empathy. You know, one of the things that we, we do to, to demonstrate empathy is to stay with people and to be in contact with them uh-huh. when they're feeling vulnerable, when they're feeling these negative emotions, you know, when things are uncertain and unclear. Mm-hmm. We have an ability to really stay with them mm-hmm. uh, in the present moment and look at them and give them our attention. Mm-hmm. And so if children are That's growing a skill up... we could all use a little more of, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. And particularly in our society, as we spend more time alone and on our devices, uh-huh. we can't see the effects that our words and our pictures and what we're posting have on other people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the research on uh, selfies shows that actually selfies usually create a negative impression for people who are seeing them, but we don't see people's reactions to our selfies. So other people who are looking at your selfies yeah. feel bad. Yeah, and, and it doesn't it doesn't help. Obviously, some caveats and some different and some uh, different circumstances, but in general, people who post a lot of selfies. Their audience is not looking upon them as more favorably for doing that. I see. And then there's all kinds of different uh, emotions that people are having, like envy and and different things, uh, because you know everybody just posts the be- best pictures of yeah. themselves. <laughs> it's like having a miserable day. I look horrible today. I'm just. I think I would like to share seeing. that with you, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So the mirror meditation. Uh huh. When you're doing the mirror meditation. Do you recommend a daily practice or is this just something you should rotate into your meditative mm-hmm. practices? How would you recommend young children to have a, a mirror practice that would be more healthy? And then for, let's say, you know, emerging adults, which I think now covers 18 to 29 years old. Yeah. Emerging adults are emerging for a while now. Uh-huh. So how would you recommend younger children, like maybe in their tweens and teens, as they become more self-conscious and start looking at themselves critically in a mirror to, you know, maybe prevent that mm-hmm. from happening altogether. 
Because okay. I'm, I'm all about prevention. Yeah, yeah. I totally, I totally. Proactive. Yes, indeed. Well, first, I want to tell you how I shifted from my own being so critical when I looked in the mirror as a teen. One of the things that happened to me was I was doing that self-objectification where I was just looking at myself and, you know, thinking I should be thinner, I should, my hair should be different, you know, my um, I want to do my eyes differently, my nose is too big, you know, all kinds of things. I was walking around my apartment mm-hmm. and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror and I was shocked by how sad and distressed I looked because hmm. I hadn't realized I felt that way. Mm-hmm. Over time then, I began to take a few minutes to look at myself in the mirror and check in with how I was feeling. Oh. That kind of revived my sense of the familiarity of seeing myself in the mirror that I used to sort of comfort me as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I began doing that just to kind of check in with how I was feeling emotionally. Mm. And over time, it became a meditation. The mirror was so helpful to me that I wanted to see as the scientists in me then came online and was like, hmm, what's going on here scientifically? Like, Mm -hmm. why is looking in the mirror, you know, am I a narcissist? Am I just sitting here being narcissistic, (laughs) gazing at myself? And and I didn't think so because I was oftentimes not feeling terribly great when I looked in the mirror, (laughs) you know, but I was just sitting with myself as like an open inquiry mm-hmm. like what's here now if i just if i just sit for 10 minutes what will i discover about myself and i discovered some amazing things so did you actually do the research on that then well i did the research with people so i had yeah. them come to my lab uh-huh and actually just gaze at their own reflection and amazing. then tell me how they felt, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we did some questionnaire studies, the PANAS, P-A-N-A-S, positive negative affect scale, and then a self-compassion scale that we sort of adopted Kristen Neff's work. And these all relate to how happy you feel or your resilience, right? Right. So we just give people the questionnaire before they start doing the meditation and then we give them to them after. Mm-hmm. And how long was the meditation? Was it one session or was it weeks? We did a variety. So, uh-huh. f- so for some, we wanted to do the lab controlled studies. Uh-huh. We did them so that they did the meditation over the course of an hour. And sometimes they came back and we did um, as many as I think 10 or 12 sessions in the lab. And then we also had a group of people who just did it on their own based on the honor system do it and self-reported then, yeah so when you say an hour they weren't gazing it for an hour they had like some sort of a lecture or something yeah or usually something 10 learned. minutes well they felt the questionnaires before we usually do a little bit of a guided relaxation so mm-hmm. with their eyes closed we do kind of like a body scan uh-huh. and then we also tune into the deep breathing because looking in the mirror for that long can be kind of scary for people so, <laughs> so we want to get people nice them. and relaxed before they start doing it you get them physically relaxed and then you have yes. them looking so you kind of prime them before for. Exactly. Okay. Right. So we do a physical relaxation and we also do the deep breathing, which mm-hmm. is, you know, taking those deep belly breaths is one of the quickest ways to activate the vagus nerve and to calm people down. We do that. And, and do they have instructions on what to do while they're looking at the mirror? Yeah. I have guided instructions. We'll have a little bit of a progressive relaxation, some practice deep breathing, and then I guide them through looking. And we continue to focus on the breath and have people stay in their bodies because that's Mm -hmm. what happens too. We live in a culture that we're so based in our heads. I give people cues to help them sort of stay in their bodies. Mm -hmm. Like use their senses. Use Mm -hmm. all their senses, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of 
using the visual as a primary sense, but using their other senses as they look. And then is it a mindfulness exercise? Like you watch your thoughts and, and in a nonchalant way? And Definitely. So we use the three principles of mindfulness, which are keeping your attention in the present moment, having an open awareness. I invite people to be open to experiencing something that they weren't expecting, seeing something about themselves that they've never seen before, mm-hmm. to just be open to that as a possibility. And then the third principle of mindfulness is kind intention. Mm-hmm. So having a kind intention toward yourself. And to me, too, if I'm the person giving them instructions, kind intention generally. And that really helps a lot. Those are really good guiding principles. And then do you have any positive affirmations? We don't say positive affirmations. Okay. And there are some reasons for this. Do you ever watch Saturday Night Live way yeah, back? I'm right. good enough, uh-huh. I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. There is actually research <laughs> showing that that does work. Okay, indeed. the positive affirmations. Yes. If at, you, at least it'll make you laugh, right? Right, right. <laughs> I actually wrote about it in a Psychology Today piece called Compassion at the Mirror. And you have this awesome blog called The Clarity, which I'll also put a link to. But Great. it sounds like it has an amazing uh, readership at this point, right? It does. It's going to turn over to a million reads, uh, I think, in about a month or so. So wow. I'm excited. Hopefully by my birthday in April. So I'm really happy that that many people are interested in reading about self-awareness. Well, talk about sharing your resilience with people. That's yeah. incredible. Okay. Yeah, it's been it's been great. I've gotten some great feedback on it, and I'm really into providing useful tips. So yeah. I, I pr- provide science science backed, useful exercises for people to do. Fantastic. Um, so, so you wrote about this research where they were doing affirmations in a mirror uh-huh. versus affirmations without a mirror, mm-hmm. and they did better when they did it in the mirror. Right. And I think it was more compassionate phrases. So they said compassionate phrases either with a mirror or without a mirror. Uh And those that said the compassionate phrases with a mirror Uh showed more self-compassion. So that it does work. Was there like how many minutes you have to do? For example, people always ask Dr. Benson, uh, who coined the the term uh-huh. relaxation response, like, what is the minimum I have to do? Like, what's the bare minimum? To Everybody show wants in to my know brain? the bare, min- and bare minimum. And he would always laugh and say, 17 and a half minutes or something like that. Yeah. And um, their recommendation is really 20 minutes, either 10 minutes twice a day or right. optimally 20 minutes twice a day. Uh huh. 10 minutes, 20 minutes is good. And getting back to the mirror meditation that I do without the affirmation, so sitting silently, mm. um, but and- kindly. With kindly, those three mindfulness. Kindly. Right. In yeah. the present moment, open awareness with kind intention, mm-hmm. sitting silently mm-hmm. in stillness. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be challenging for people. So they're tempted to say affirmations because if they sat in silence, they would discover some new things. Mm. <laughs> and how long does this go on for? <laughs> well, um, we start with three minutes, then we work up to 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. and then Over 11 weeks. They can do it for 11 weeks. Some people do it for, for much longer. Mm-hmm. But in general, the reason we do it silently is because... It's sort of like right when the pe- right when people feel the urge to say an affirmation. Mm-hmm. This is oftentimes when an emotion's coming up and when something new is coming up that they might not know. So to me, affirmations is like a friend that you know is really upset and needs to talk about something, and you keep going. I love you as my friend. You're my best friend in the whole world. Everything is going so great for you. You have a wonderful life. You're so pretty. You're so beautiful. <laughs> and how annoying that is. Right? Yes. Yes. So this. You don't want to do that to yourself, uh-huh. right? You want to be like, I'm quiet and I'm listening and I value you by just being silent and giving you my attention. 
Which is probably what we should do for our best friends as well. Exactly. (laughs) For our best friends and for ourselves. And so we're in a culture, particularly American culture, that's so sort of uncomfortable with silence. Mm. We want to fill that space with some chatty chatty, something interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what's under that chatter? Mm -hmm. And so the the silent mirror meditation helps people to tolerate listening deeply. Mm -hmm. Wow. Interesting. I love it. And that's what you did. You did that at the Rubin Museum as well. I did it. It's a sold-out crowd. The Rubin has a, a beautiful little museum in uh, Chelsea that specializes in Eastern art. And they have a wonderful Tibetan sacred shrine on the top floor. Yes. We actually did it for 60 people mm-hmm. as a silent ritual mm-hmm. in which people set intentions for what they wanted. It would, we did it in the spring. So it, it was they set intentions for what they wanted to create and what they wanted to see in themselves. They sat in silence and they I guided them through the meditation. That's beautiful. It was a great experience. So I I did, I tried a little bit. Uh It was just a a very small uh, group of kids and I had them use their phone. Uh-huh. What do you think of that? Just to like face the photo, because we didn't have mirrors. Right. So they just looked at themselves Uh as a mirror on the phone. Uh Uh-huh. And it seemed to do the job. Uh Uh-huh. Would you, do you think there's a particular reason that you have to have an actual mirror? I think there are some advantages to having a mirror, yeah. For one thing, phone, you know, you want to make sure you turn off all your notifications, put oh, yeah. in airplane mode and that yeah. kind of thing. And the other thing is, you know, particularly for that population, they're already associating kind of their phone and their camera with taking selfies. So, and there's a, a specific emotional pattern, I find, with people who ha- have selfies and selfie addiction, which not everybody who takes selfies clearly yeah. has an addiction to it. Uh-huh. And by addiction, we mean it's always an addiction if it's interfering with your daily life. Right, right. Right. Problematic usage is just maybe it's bothering you, but you're not losing your job or you're not failing school. Right. Addiction is those two things, which I hate when we have to wait for someone to become diagnosable. Yeah, it's an important distinction to make. But I would say, too, you know, if you're doing something and you wish you weren't doing it, but you can't stop doing it. Problematic. That's problematic, Compulsion. Compulsion, Mm -hmm. right. And I think the research on addictive behavior and what I see in working with individuals with a selfie behavior that they're trying to change, put it that way, is that it's almost an emotion regulation strategy. There's something coming up for them emotionally that they don't want to deal with. So they take the focus off themselves and their internal space of what they're feeling emotionally and take a picture and Uh create an image and that makes them feel better. And then they get likes for that image. Mm. But then that's reinforcing, again, that external image that needs to be a certain way rather than getting any kind of validation or feedback or mirroring for what their inter- their actual internal state is. So you think the actual phone has like so much meaning that it's probably better to have an actual mirror yeah. rather than a phone. It become associated yeah. with, with yeah. all kinds of things for people. Right. And most of it is, I think the phone in and of itself can provoke anxiety, just like seeing it, you know? <laughs> so did the Reuben whip out 60 mirrors? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I also do a lot of work with individuals just because there's so many different aspects uh-huh. that we can get at individually, uh, like you were asking me earlier about. Um, so you do clinical work, like one-on-one? I do one-on-one clinical work. I'm not a licensed clinical psychologist. So most of my clients 
who are dealing with serious issues are also in psychotherapy with a licensed therapist. And you specifically teach them mirror meditation. I specifically teach them mirror meditation. Wonderful. Uh huh. And and this is sort of like a supplement between therapy. It's so you're a, teaching, like you're a teacher rather I'm than a therapist it. in yes. that role. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, what we discover, again, when we're in that process of silence and open awareness in terms of anything could happen, we could have any kind of experience, uh, is, is really amazing what people report. Um, you know, the three main findings are that people develop more self-compassion over time because they realize doing it initially activates that inner critic and those unkind voices. Mm-hmm. So over time, they see on their face... They, when they start really tuning into themselves, they see on their face how how their own criticism is affecting them. Mm-hmm. And then they have a practice to treat themselves with more kindness. That's wonderful. So if somebody wanted to be guided by you, is there a recording or a YouTube video that they can we can refer them to? We're going we're gonna to make some recordings. And I also Fantastic. work individually with people online. You can learn more about it and apply at my website, mirrormeditation.com. Awesome. You did a TEDx talk recently, which yes. was fantastic. I loved it. Thank um, you. How was that experience? How did that happen for you? Was this something you applied to or somebody recommended you? I wanted to do one, and I wanted to choose a venue that I thought would be receptive to what I was doing. I saw a TED talk by a psychologist named Amy Marin, who you might have heard of. She's a, a resilience person, and she had a TED Talk on secrets of mental strength, and it has over 11 million views. Wow. And she did it at TEDx Ocala. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, hmm, that might be a good venue. <laughs> and I happened to, to look on their site, and the theme for the coming year was Reflections. Perfect. This is perfect, you know, kind of a thing. And and the deadline was like a couple weeks weeks away to submit a video. And I'm like, ah, I'm just going to try. And they accepted me and they gave me sort of like the keynote spot, the spot that Amy had as a last speaker. So it was Wonderful. really... Most TEDx talks will ask you to submit a video. And then usually you have an interview. You have to do more. But they accepted me right away. It needed to be a minute. So it was, it was like kind of like a little abstract. It was like a pitch for <laughs> okay. the talk that I wanted to give that I recorded. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you have to have a kind of a, a concise pitch that gets people's attention. Uh-huh. And so once you were accepted, they just whisked you out there, or do they give you some coaching, or do they help you uh, get get it up to par? I How was, was that experience for you? It was great. I, I was assigned a, a speaking coach who had given a TEDx talk two years ago, Rena Romano, and she gave a TEDx talk at Ocala. Uh-huh. She'd been on Oprah, has a best-selling book on um, her personal journey through dealing with sexual abuse wow. and her talk now I think it has about 150,000 views or something so they recommended her to you they have a whole group of former speakers also the the woman who produces it is very active in um, Toastmasters mm-hmm. it was great to have her guidance because she was wonderful Rena was really wonderful and also, too, as I tell my students, we do TEDx talks in my classes for their research presentations at the ends of the class. Fun. And I tell students, and basically anybody will listen to me, it's important to be able to talk about what is really of interest to you and what your area of expertise is in a short 10 to 15 minute talk that is in the format of an idea worth spreading, that I think that that's really invaluable. If you want to get 
you know, your work out into the world, you have a message, that being able to craft your message in that format is really, really valuable. It's a bite-sized format that people can listen to quickly and get the gist of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, It's entertaining, it's educational, Mm -hmm. and it gives you a lot of confidence to be able to then talk. It's not something that academic, it's not a strong suit in academics to teach people to communicate their ideas in a way that an average person can understand. Uh-huh. We tend to sort of want to make it more complicated and, and more, you know, refined and sophisticated. And I think that that ends up becoming a disadvantage, particularly if what you're doing, it really has practical benefits in the world. You want to be able to communicate that to just about anybody who would be interested in hearing about it. Yeah, because it will help them. Exactly. Yeah. So did you feel like there was a big learning curve or? Um, in some ways, I mean, because I'm doing the work with the mere meditation and a lot of it is really promoting or highlighting authenticity. Mm-hmm. It was very important that I came out as very authentic in the TEDx talk. And I think a lot of the talks, sometimes people are so like pumped up and it feels a little bit staged. Uh-huh. So um, I wanted to not do that. I wanted to be really authentic in terms of how I was speaking. So I tried to feel like I wasn't performing, mm-hmm. but that I was just like talking to like like I'm talking to you, like We're I'm talking sharing. to just a person or sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that takes a little practice to do because you really are in front of an audience of 900 people uh-huh. <laughs> and you got these bright lights. I mean, that's the other thing. If you don't realize how bright the lights are on you, it's like having an eye exam where you can see the floaters in your eyes, like, <laughs> like, like you're having an eye exam the whole time that you're on the, you're out there talking. Do they give you stage time though to prep for that part? We got one rehearsal. Wow. One rehearsal. Uh-huh. Yeah. But you, you have like a, the talent. Teleprompter. You have um, a screen that just shows you where your slides are. So you can look down on it and make sure that your slides are so you don't have to turn around and look at the slides. Although I did do that once in the talk. The talk is completely memorized. Do you forward the slides or it's all like timed already? I forward the slides. Okay. Yeah. And that's an art too, to kind of coordinating the slides. And generally, I think too, you know, one of the things in academic talks is you can kind of hide behind your slides, you know, like, the don't look at me, look at my slide, you or know, the podium. Uh, but I like to hide behind the podium sometimes. Exactly. And with the, with the TEDx talk, man, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing there, you know, and, and they say, you know, don't like write out your whole talk on a slide, like, in a, like many kind of boring academic talks. Mm-hmm. So you want to use as fewer vi- as visuals as you can. So I just had a couple of visuals of me actually doing mirror meditation with people. So you can kind of see what it's like. That was your first TED Talk. I yeah. thought it was amazing. And what did you take away from it? Do you feel like you can just go on any stage now? Well, I mean, there are things that I'd like to do differently. But I think the mirror meditation was working because when you saw it on my screen out there, you were like, hey, I look good. <laughs> <laughs> I look I look great on your huge uh, screen. That's the other thing. You know, people sometimes think, okay, so you're doing this work, so you're not critical of your appearance at all anymore, right? Oh, that, you, yeah. You're completely cured, right? That's always like <laughs> when I'm teaching resilience, they're like, hey, you don't, you seem upset today. Well, yeah, I, I still have emotions. <laughs> I still have my on days and off days. <laughs> right, right. So I, so I was critical of my appearance when I saw the TEDx talk. But for me, I think the difference is, my criticism is normalized, so I don't have uh-huh. shame over it. I was just actually doing another interview with, I was talking about body shame, and I said, you know, the worst thing you can do with body shame is shame yourself for being ashamed. You know, like, I'm, I feel body shame, I'm ashamed. But it's just like, yeah, I look fat in my swimsuit, I hate it, oh well, you know. So it's just normalizing that self-criticism so, so that you're not, 
it's not affecting your well-being. It's just saying, yeah, I'm older and I'm fatter. <laughs> and my nose is bigger. Or my teeth don't look as good as they did 20 years and ago. And you're not Whatever. saying, I'm a mirror meditation teacher, so I can never feel upset about how I look in the mirror. Right. <laughs> like, I love myself. I'm so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so, the shame so, part is it, it could really get you stuck. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's part of and it, too. And also there's fact, right? I mean, if I... I gained some weight over the last few years. And if I look and I always say to myself, oh, you know, I can't criticize myself, you know, or see what's really there, I might become unhealthier. Because now I'm taking action. I'm saying, you know what? I did actually gain some weight and I do need to do these certain things to get my health back on track. Right. So there is a reality to it, too. Yeah. So it's like if you're afraid to look at yourself in the mirror because you're so mean to yourself Uh that you want to avoid looking because you don't want to hurt yourself with how mean you are, (laughs) then you're going in a self-delusion loop. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because you can't even look at yourself because you're so mean to yourself. And then whatever it is you need to see, you can't change because you're afraid to look. Yeah. So what it is, too, it's being able to sit with yourself and say, hey, yeah, you know, I gained some weight. I'm getting older. You know, my tooth is weird. I, have <laughs> I better go to the dentist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, and having that be like, oh, yeah, I'm human. Kind yes. of a thing rather than, oh, I can't even look because I'm so not perfect. You know, <laughs> so so that's what, so it's, it's normalizing. Normalizing. That. I normalizing. love that word. Yes, yeah. because you're not going, you're you're actually looking at your thoughts and saying that's overboard criticism versus or, or that's actual, mean. you know, I need right. to go see the doctor about that spot. On my right. skin. Right. Saying, you know, I've I've gained 10 pounds. I can see this hanging over my, yeah. my whatever <laughs> so is, is like, a fact. Like, but, but saying, saying like, I'm a fat pig or God, how can I love myself? Dude, that's self-cruelty. So that's actually CBT, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy, where you actually pick out the facts from opinion or just exaggeration. Or right. all those uh, cognitive distortions. Yes, it's definitely consistent with uh, idea, uh, the, the principles of, of CBT. CBT. Not CBT. <laughs> CBT. Not CBD. Right. That's a different, one. A different conversation. Uh, this was so fascinating. I could talk to you forever, but I want to give you lunch. I just have one extra question. My daughter has been in ballet since she was like, could walk. Mm-hmm. So they're always looking in the mirror in a critical fashion because that's part of ballet, mm-hmm. right? So you have to adjust your body accordingly. Then, of course, in their teenage years, we've seen a lot of eating disorders. Um, and then now she's actually a model. So mm-hmm. that's even more magnified by cameras that actually put 10 pounds on you. What would you say to these girls who are in these kinds of either athletes or or dancers, and you know, and they have to look in the mirror all the time in this kind of critical way. Mm-hmm. Well, I do work with a lot of actors and models and dancers uh-huh. because they have such a complex relationship with the mirror. Yes, uh, as you as you mentioned, you know, it's something that they use to have this exacting image and and exacting movements, and and they use it for feedback yes. to improve themselves mm-hmm. very rigorously. Yes. So I would say, in addition to doing that, they want to have a different relationship with the mirror in the sense of being able to check in with how they're feeling. Mm-hmm. So doing the mirror meditation actually is wonderful for them uh, because they, they need to separate out. Um, if They don't want to only have a relationship with their own image that's critical and that is self-objectifying. Yes. But yet you can normalize that because if you want to be a model, if you want to be a dancer, you're going to have to use the mirror in that way. Yes. But that's not the only way you should be seeing yourself. Okay. You want to be able to see your emotions. You want to be able to sit with yourself 
and just have a day where you don't have any makeup on and you're just in your sweatpants and, you know, you look fat and ugly or whatever your your deal is that you're trying to hide that you look like and letting yourself have that. So I do the majority of my mirror meditations without makeup on, and though I'm not a, a model or anything, but I do many of them without uh, makeup on. Sometimes I do them at night. I have my night guard in, and I'm funny. And I do, that's well, for your teeth, right? I do so video you don't journals. Grind your teeth, or yeah. Something? Okay. I do video journals too you sometimes do. too. Okay. And sometimes I do it with the night guard on because I forget to do it before I put it on my night guard. But that's on your phone then. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I you do, do video the, journals okay. on my phone okay. sometimes too. Okay. But you're not posting it. No. <laughs> the, the video journals. <laughs> So we also do this program called the 10, 10, and 10, which is okay. 10 minutes of silent mirror gazing a day, making a 10-minute video journal in which you say whatever you want to in your video journal. You just agree not to show it to anybody. I so see. it's kind of like a diary, but it's a visual video diary. Oh. And then 10 minutes watching it back with your full attention, being aware of your body sensations and emotions as you watch yourself. And then do you do it right after you filmed yourself, um, or it doesn't matter? Usually not. I usually wait... Different people have different that I've worked with have different uh, rhythms to it. Uh-huh. So most people do the uh, mirror gazing in the morning, and then they do the video journal at night. And then what I do is like, I but find time I'm so much more negative than I am in the morning. Well, it's great to be able to see that pattern. It's great to be able to see that pattern, yeah. and you'll see it when you watch your videos. One of the interesting things we find is that when they look back on their videos. They're amazed at how much they've accomplished, how much they were feeling, what they did. Because we tend to remember our unfinished tasks Mm -hmm. and things that turned out negatively. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking for 10 minutes, it's amazing how much, you know, you really have changed and progressed in just a week. I love it because you're talking to yourself and you're going to listen to yourself as you would somebody you care about and that you... And you're not friends gonna, with. Yeah, and you're yeah. not going to show it to anybody so you, you can relieve yourself of that performance aspect. Yes, yes. And so that's, you know, when I work with uh, people who are performers, it's important that they have a relationship with themselves and their own image that isn't performance-based. Because over time, just focusing on your external image, research shows that it can numb body sensations. What can? Self-objectification. When you just look at your own image and you and you kind of get in that mode of always thinking about how you look to other people, uh-huh. how your external image looks to other people, uh-huh. it also affects cognitive function because you can't you can't be thinking about how you look and be doing at the same time, you know. So it's getting comfortable with just seeing yourself as you are mm-hmm. and giving yourself space to feel those emotions that you might need to regulate or sort of hide or keep under control when you're performing. But you still want to have access to them because you you know, you, you don't want to cut yourself off from the full range of emotions because it's part of your image and what you're trying to do to only show certain aspects of yourself. Uh-huh. So you want to keep those other aspects and the variety of who you are uh, alive. And that's mm-hmm. what every creative person needs to do. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to get so narrow in your kind of self-objectified persona roles that you're in, that that you want to be in because you want to be successful. Part of their success is to be able to share as much of themselves as possible without feeling that self-consciousness. So that's probably freeing too, right? Right. Creatively. Definitely. And the idea that you want to be able to be vulnerable with yourself first. That's the other thing that I talk about with, particularly with people who take a lot of selfies. Oftentimes they'll show other people some vulnerable aspects of themselves 
but they don't really process it themselves. Mm-hmm. And over time, it can be harmful to them because if they're if they're showing a lot of emotions just out in public and they're getting a lot back in terms of, of negative stuff online or, or whatever, but they're not really processing it. So, so you mean like those vloggers who like talk about how upset they were or something? Or, and they're or people who post pictures of themselves crying or really oh, upset. okay. Like, have you processed that? So one of the biggest changes we see in... Uh, working with people with self-addiction is that what they need is to trust themselves and to find and to share that privately, to take the time and to risk sharing it one-on-one with someone who really cares about them. They actually find that that is much more threatening and much harder to do than to just show a photo of themselves crying on Instagram. Mm. And you're taking it to the next level where you are your own friend. And then once you are your own friend, Mm -hmm. you can be more selective about how you share and what you share. Mm-hmm. To keep your boundaries, to keep... But to also know how you're feeling. Because the other thing is, if you don't know how you're feeling, you're much more vulnerable to letting other people tell you how you're feeling. To, like, gaslighting and emotional manipulation. Oh, wow. If you don't know so how you're, you're feeling. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. If you're oh. always looking to other people for affirma- affirmation or to check in with them. So you want to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. And this is the other thing that I work with people on building back self-trust if they've been in emotionally abusive relationships and situations. Again, they're also in psychotherapy, but to really feel that sense of Mm self-trust, to look in themselves in the eye and to know that they trust themselves. Well, this is fascinating. I mean, whoever thought of the mirror as such a simple object could be so powerful. Yes, indeed. It's it's amazing. I keep finding more and more uses for it. And my students and my clients keep reporting more and more revelations. That's amazing. amazing. So what's down the pike for you? Do you have new research coming? Well, right now I'm writing a book, which is going to share all the case studies of different people that I've worked with and the different discoveries that we've made on it. Uh I continue to work with individuals. And I also do a variety of workshops and private settings and corporate settings so that I can work with individual groups who know each other. We have um, special exercises that I'm doing. couples. Married couples? Exactly. (laughs) We've developed exercises in how to see each other. Wow. Practice being seen Uh and seeing each other. And is there, are you going to do more in your lab? Yeah, we're doing some studies now in the lab. Are you recruiting people or is it usually just Barnard students? We're usually using Barnard students and, um, uh, but... Again, I'm happy to talk with people about doing individual sessions. There's an application on the on the website, mm-hmm. and so I'm always uh, looking for interesting people with who are who are open to experience of seeing themselves in a new way. That was Tara Well. Thank you so much for coming out. My I'm, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you thank for having you. me. This was awesome. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast helpful in any way, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Download episodes so you can listen anywhere and anytime and share it with people who need to stress less and get resilient, pretty much everyone these days. At the website, mindbodyspace.com, you'll find podcast episodes, meditations, and more. Email info at mindbodyspace.com to ask questions, suggest topics, and guests. Stay well, stay strong, and wishing all of you and your loved ones health, happiness, and hope.